Alright guys, we have made it. This is the final episode where we're going to be going over The Princess of Mars. Hope you guys have enjoyed the book. I would love to hear what you think about it. If you've enjoyed another Edgar Rice Burroughs book, I would love to hear from you. So all the contact information is down below. As always, love hearing from you guys. Uh, gave a big shout out, I think it was last episode, to somebody who left a review. Still just like on cloud nine about that. So if you want to make my day, all you got to do is leave a quick review. It takes no time for you and just warms, warms my heart. So hope you guys enjoy this last episode of A Princess of Mars. Chapter 26. Through Carnage to Joy. Some time later, Tars Tarkas and Kantos Khan returned to report that Zodanga had been completely reduced. Her forces were entirely destroyed or captured, and no further resistance was to be expected from within. Several battleships had escaped, but there were thousands of war and merchant vessels under guard of Thark warriors. The lesser hordes had commenced looting and quarreling among themselves, so it was declared that we collect what warriors we could man as many vessels as possible with Zodangan prisoners, and make for Helium without further loss of time. Five hours later, we sailed from the roofs of the dock buildings with a fleet of 250 battleships, carrying nearly 100,000 green warriors, followed by a fleet of transports with our thoats. Behind us, we left the stricken city in the fierce and brutal clutches of some 40,000 green warriors of the lesser horns. They were looting, murdering, and fighting amongst themselves. In a hundred places they had applied the torch, and columns of dense smoke were rising above the city, as though to blot out from the eye of heaven the horrid sights beneath. In the middle of the afternoon we sighted the scarlet and yellow towers of Helium, and a short time later a great fleet of Zodangan battleships rose from the camps of besiegers without the city and advanced to meet us. The banners of Helium had been strung from stem to stern of each of our mighty craft, but the Zodangans did not need this sign to realize that we were enemies, for our green Martian warriors had opened fire upon them almost as they left the ground. With their uncanny marksmanship, they raked the oncoming fleet with volley after volley. The twin cities of Helium, perceiving that we were friends, sent out hundreds of vessels to aid us, and then began the first real air battle I had ever witnessed. The vessels carrying our green warriors were kept circling above the contending fleets of Helium and Zodanga, since their batteries were useless in the hands of Tharks who, having no navy, have no skill in naval gunnery. Their small armed fire, however, was most effective, and the final outcome of the engagement was strongly influenced, if not wholly determined, by their presence. At first the two forces circled at the same altitude, pouring broadside after broadside into each other. Presently a great hole was torn in the hull of one of the immense battlecraft from the Zodangan camp. With a lurch, she turned completely over, the little figures of her crew plunging, turning and twisting toward the ground a thousand feet below. Then, with sickening velocity, she tore after them, almost completely burying herself in the soft loam of the ancient sea bottom. A wild cry of exultation arose from the Heliumite squadron, and with redoubled ferocity they fell upon the Zodangan fleet. By a pretty maneuver, two of the vessels of Helium gained a position above their adversaries, from which they poured upon them from their keel-bomb batteries a perfect torrent of exploding bombs. Then, one by one, the battleships of Helium succeeded in rising above the Zodangans, and in a short time a number of the beleaguering battleships were drifting hopeless wrecks toward the high scarlet tower of Greater Helium. Several others attempted to escape, but they were soon surrounded by thousands of tiny individual flyers, and above each hung a monster battleship of Helium, ready to drop boarding parties upon their decks. Within but little more than an hour from the moment the victorious Zodangan squadron had risen to meet us from the camp of the besiegers, the battle was over and the remaining vessels of the conquered Zodangans were headed toward the cities of Helium under prize crews.
there was an extremely pathetic side to the surrender of these mighty flyers, the result of an age-old custom which demanded that surrender should be signalized by the voluntary plunging to earth of the commander of the vanquished vessel. One after another, the brave fellows, holding their colors high above their heads, leaped from the towering bows of their mighty craft to an awful death. Not until the commander of the entire fleet took the fearful plunge, thus indicating the surrender of the remaining vessels, did the fighting cease, and the useless sacrifice of brave men come to an end. We now signaled the flagship of Helium's navy to approach, and when she was within hailing distance, I called out that we had the Princess Dejah Thoris on board, and that we wished to transfer her to the flagship that she might be taken immediately to the city. As the full import of my announcement bore in upon them, a great cry arose from the decks of the flagship, and a moment later the colors of the Princess of Helium broke from a hundred points upon her upper works. When the other vessels of the squadron caught the meaning of the signals flashed upon them, they took up the wild acclaim and unfurled her colors in the gleaming sunlight. The flagship bore down upon us, and as she swung gracefully to and touched our side, a dozen officers sprang upon our decks. As their astonished gaze fell upon the hundreds of green warriors, who now came forth from the fighting shelters, they stopped aghast, but at sight of Kantos Khan, who advanced to meet them, they came forward, crowding around him. Dejah Thoris and I then advanced, and they had no eyes for other than her. She received them gracefully, calling each by name, for they were men high in the esteem and service of her grandfather, and she knew them well. Lay your hands upon the shoulder of John Carter, she said to them, turning toward me. The man to whom Helium owes her princess, as well as her victory today. They were very courteous to me, and said many kind and complimentary things, but what seemed to impress them most was that I had won the aid of the fierce Thoks in my campaign for the liberation of Dejah Thoris and the relief of Helium. You owe your thanks more to another man than to me, I said, and here he is. Meet one of Barsoom's greatest soldiers and statesmen, Tars Tarkas, Jeddak of Thark. With the same polished courtesy that had marked their manner toward me, they extended their greetings to the great Thark, nor, to my surprise, was he much behind them in ease of bearing or in courtly speech. Though not a glamorous race, the Thoks are extremely formal, and their ways lend themselves amazingly to dignified and courtly manners. Dejah Thoris went aboard the flagship, and was much put out that I would not follow, but as I explained to her, the battle was but partly won. We still had the land forces of the besieging Zodangans to account for, and I would not leave Tars Tarkas until that had been accomplished. The commander of the naval forces of Helium promised to arrange to have the armies of Helium attack from the city in conjunction with our land attack, and so the vessel separated and Dejah Thoris was borne in triumph back to the court of her grandfather, Tardos Moors, Jeddak of Helium. In the distance lay our fleet of transports, with the thoats of the green warriors, where they had remained during the battle. Without landing stages, it was to be a difficult matter to unload these beasts upon the open plain, but there was nothing else for it, and so we put out for a point about ten miles from the city and began the task. It was necessary to lower the animals to the ground in slings, and this work occupied the remainder of the day and half of the night. Twice we were attacked by parties of Zodangan cavalry, but with little loss, however, and after darkness shut down, they withdrew. As soon as the last thoat was unloaded, Tars Tarkas gave the command to advance, and in three parties we crept upon the Zodangan camp from the north, the south, and the east. About a mile from the main camp, we encountered their outposts, and, as had been prearranged, accepted this as a signal to charge. With wild, ferocious cries, and amidst the nasty squealing of battle-enraged thoats, we bore down upon the Zodangans. 
We did not catch them napping, but found a well-entrenched battle line confronting us. Time after time, we were repulsed, until, toward noon, I began to fear for the result of the battle. The Zodangans numbered nearly a million fighting men, gathered from pole to pole, wherever stretched their ribbon-like waterways, while pitted against them were less than a hundred thousand green warriors. The forces from Helium had not arrived, nor could we receive any word from them. Just at noon, we heard heavy firing all along the line between the Zodangans and the city, and we knew then that our much-needed reinforcements had come. Again, Tars Tarkas ordered the charge, and once more the mighty Thoats bore their terrible riders against the ramparts of the enemy. At the same moment, the battle line of Helium surged over the opposite breastworks of the Zodangans, and in another moment they were being crushed as between two millstones. Nobly they fought, but in vain. The plain before the city became a veritable shambles ere the last Zodangan surrendered, but finally the carnage ceased. The prisoners were marched back to Helium, and we entered the greater city's gates, a huge triumphal procession of conquering heroes. The broad avenues were lined with women and children, among which were the few men whose duties necessitated that they remain within the city during the battle. We were greeted with an endless round of applause, and showered with ornaments of gold, platinum, silver, and precious jewels. The city had gone mad with joy. My fierce thought caused the wildest excitement and enthusiasm. Never before had an armed body of green warriors entered the gates of Helium, and that they came now as friends and allies filled the red men with rejoicing. That my poor services to Dejah Thoris had become known to the Heliumites was evidenced by the loud crying of my name, and by the loads of ornaments that were fastened upon me and my huge throat as we passed up the avenues to the palace, for even in the face of the ferocious appearance of Wula, the populace pressed close about me. As we approached this magnificent pile, we were met by a party of officers who greeted us warmly and requested that Tars Tarkas and his Jeds, with the Jeddak and Jeds of his wild allies, together with myself, dismount and accompany them to receive from Tardos Moors an expression of his gratitude for our services. At the top of the great steps leading up to the main portals of the palace stood the royal party, and as we reached the lower steps, one of their number descended to meet us. He was an almost perfect specimen of manhood, tall, straight as an arrow, superbly muscled, and with the carriage and bearing of a ruler of men. I did not need to be told that he was Tardos Moors, Jeddak of Helium. The first member of our party he met was Tars Tarkas, and his first words sealed forever the new friendship between the races. "'That Tardos Moors,' he said earnestly, "'may meet the greatest living warrior of Barsoom is a priceless honor, but that he may lay his hand on the shoulder of a friend and ally is a far greater boon.' Jeddak of Helium, returned Tars Tarkas. It has remained for a man of another world to teach the green warriors of Barsoom the meaning of friendship. To him we owe the fact that the hordes of Thark can understand you, that they can appreciate and reciprocate the sentiments so graciously expressed. Tardos Moors then greeted each of the green Jeddaks and Jeds, and to each spoke words of friendship and appreciation. As he approached me, he laid both hands upon my shoulders. Welcome, my son, he said. That you are granted gladly, and without one word of opposition, the most precious jewel in all helium, yes, on all Barsoom, is sufficient earnest of my esteem. We were then presented to Moore's Kajak, Jed of Lesser Helium, and father of Dejah Thoris. He had followed close behind Tardos Moors, and seemed even more affected by the meeting than had his father. He tried a dozen times to express his gratitude to me, but his voice choked with emotion, 
and he could not speak. And yet he had, as I was later to learn, a reputation for ferocity and fearlessness as a fighter that was remarkable even upon warlike Barsoom. In common with all helium, he worshipped his daughter, nor could he think of what she had escaped without deep emotion. Chapter 27 From Joy to Death For ten days the hordes of Thark and their wild allies were feasted and entertained, and then loaded with costly presents and escorted by ten thousand soldiers of helium commanded by Moore's Kajak, they started on the return journey to their own lands. The Jed of Lesser Helium, with a small party of nobles, accompanied them all the way to Thark to cement more closely the new bonds of peace and friendship. Sola also accompanied Tars Tarkas, her father, who before all his chieftains had acknowledged her as his daughter. Three weeks later, Mors Kajak and his officers, accompanied by Tars Tarkas and Sola, returned upon a battleship that had been dispatched to Thark to fetch them in time for the ceremony which made Dejah Thoris and John Carter one. For nine years, I served in the councils and fought in the armies of Helium as a prince of the house of Tardos Moors. The people seemed never to tire of heaping honors upon me, and no day passed that did not bring some new proof of their love for my princess, the incomparable Dejah Thoris. In a golden incubator upon the roof of our palace lay a snow-white egg. For nearly five years, ten soldiers of the Jeddak's guard God had constantly stood over it, and not a day passed when I was in the city that Dejah Thoris and I did not stand hand in hand before our little shrine, planning for the future, when the delicate shell should break. Vivid in my memory is the picture of the last night, as we sat there talking in low tones of the strange romance which had woven our lives together, and of this wonder which was coming to augment our happiness and fulfill our hopes. In the distance we saw the bright white light of an approaching airship, but we attached no special significance to so common a sight. Like a bolt of lightning, it raced toward helium, until its very speed bespoke the unusual. Flashing the signals which proclaimed it a dispatch bearer for the Jeddak, it circled impatiently, awaiting the tardy patrol boat which must convey it to the palace docks. Ten minutes after it touched at the palace, a message called me to the council chamber, which I found filling with the members of that body. On the raised platform of the throne was Tardos Moors, pacing back and forth with tense, drawn face. When all were in their seats, he turned toward us. This morning, he said, word reached the several governments of Barsoom that the keeper of the atmosphere plant had made no wireless report for two days, nor had Omer's ceaseless calls upon him from a score of capitals elicited a sign of response. The ambassadors of the other nations asked us to take the matter in hand and hasten the assistant keeper to the plant. All day a thousand cruisers have been searching for him, until just now one of them returns bearing his dead body, which was found in the pits beneath his house, horribly mutilated by some assassin. I do not need to tell you what this means to Barsoom. It would take months to penetrate those mighty walls. In fact, the work is already commenced, and there would be little to fear were the engine of the pumping plant to run as it should, and as they all have for hundreds of years. But the worst, we fear has happened. The instruments show a rapidly decreasing air pressure on all parts of Barsoom. The engine has stopped. My gentlemen, he concluded, we have at best three days to live. There was absolute silence for several minutes, and then a young noble arose, and with his drawn sword held high above his head, addressed Tardos Moors. The men of Helium have prided themselves that they have ever shown Barsoom how a nation of redmen should live. Now is our opportunity to show them how they should die. 
Let us go about our duties as though a thousand useful years still lay before us. The chamber rang with applause, and as there was nothing better to do than allay the fears of the people by our example, we went our ways with smiles upon our faces and sorrow gnawing at our hearts. When I returned to my palace, I found that the rumor already had reached Asia Thoris, so I told her all that I had heard. We have been very happy, John Carter, she said, and I thank whatever fate overtakes us that it permits us to die together. The next two days brought no noticeable change in the supply of air, but on the morning of the third day, breathing became difficult at the higher altitudes of the rooftops. The avenues and plazas of helium were filled with people. All business had ceased. For the most part, the people looked bravely into the face of their unalterable doom. Here and there, however, men and women gave way to quiet grief. Toward the middle of the day, many of the weaker commenced to succumb, and within an hour, the people of Barsoom were sinking by thousands into the unconsciousness which precedes death by asphyxiation. Dejah Thoris and I, with the other members of the royal family, had collected in a sunken garden within an inner courtyard of the palace. We conversed in low tones, when we conversed at all, as the awe of the grim shadow of death crept over us. Even Wula seemed to feel the weight of the impending calamity, for he pressed close to Dejah Thoris and me, whining pitifully. The little incubator had been brought from the roof of our palace at request of Dejah Thoris, and she sat gazing longingly upon the unknown little life that now she would never know. As it was becoming perceptibly difficult to breathe, Tardis Moors arose, saying, Let us bid each other farewell. The days of the greatness of Barsoom are over. Tomorrow's sun will look down upon a dead world which through all eternity must go swinging through the heavens, peopled not even by memories. It is the end. He stooped and kissed the women of his family, and laid his strong hand upon the shoulders of the men. As I turned sadly from him, my eyes fell upon Dejah Thoris. Her head was drooping upon her breast. To all appearances, she was lifeless. With a cry, I sprang to her and raised her in my arms. Her eyes opened and looked into mine. Kiss me, John Carter, she murmured. I love you. I love you. It is cruel that we must be torn apart who were just starting upon a life of love and happiness. As I pressed her dear lips to mine, the old feeling of unconquerable power and authority rose in me. The fighting blood of Virginia sprang to life in my veins. It shall not be, my princess, I cried. There is, there must be some way, and John Carter, who has fought his way through a strange world for love of you, will find it. And with my words... There crept above the threshold of my conscious mind a series of nine long-forgotten sounds. Like a flash of lightning in the darkness, their full purport dawned upon me. The key to the three great doors of the atmosphere plant. Turning suddenly toward Tardos Moors, as I clasped my dying love to my breast, I cried, A fly, Jeddak! Quick! Order your swiftest fly to the palace top! I can save Barsoom yet! He did not wait to question, but in an instant, a guard was racing to the nearest dock, and though the air was thin and almost gone at the rooftop, they managed to launch the fastest one-man air scout machine that the skill of Barsoom had ever produced. Kissing Dejah Thoris a dozen times, and commanding Wula, who would have followed me, to remain and guard her, I bounded with my old agility and strength to the high ramparts of the palace, and in another moment I was headed toward the goal of the hopes of all Barsoom. I had to fly low to get sufficient air to breathe, but I took a straight course across the old sea bottom, and so had only to rise a few feet above the ground. 
I traveled with awful velocity, for my errand was a race against time with death. The face of Dejah Thoris hung always before me. As I turned for a last look as I left the palace garden, I had seen her stagger and sink upon the ground beside the little incubator. That she had dropped into the last coma which would end in death, if the air supply remained unreplenished, I knew well. And so, throwing caution to the wind, I flung overboard everything but the engine and compass, even my own ornaments, and lying on my belly along the deck with one hand on the steering wheel and the other pushing the speed lever to its last notch, I split the thin air of dying Mars with the speed of a meteor. An hour before dark, the great walls of the atmosphere plant loomed suddenly before me, and with a sickening thud, I plunged to the ground before the small door, which was withholding the spark of life from the inhabitants of an entire planet. Beside the door, a great crew of men had been laboring to pierce the wall, but they had scarcely scratched the flint-like surface, and now most of them lay in the last sleep from which not even air would awaken them. Conditions seemed much worse here than at Helium, and it was with difficulty that I breathed at all. There were a few men still conscious, and to one of these I spoke. "'If I can open these doors, is there a man who can start the engine?' I asked. "'I can,' he replied. "'If you open quickly, I can last but a few moments more. But it is useless. They are both dead, and no one else upon Barsoom knew the secret of these awful locks.' For three days, men crazed with fear have surged about this portal in vain attempts to solve its mystery. I had no time to talk. I was becoming very weak, and it was with difficulty that I controlled my mind at all. But, with a final effort, as I sank weakly to my knees, I hurled the nine thought waves at the awful thing before me. The Martian had crawled to my side, and with staring eyes fixed on the single panel before us, we waited in the silence of death. Slowly, the mighty door receded before us, I attempted to rise and follow it, but I was too weak. After it, I cried to my companion. And if you reach the pump room, turn loose all the pumps. It is the only chance Barsoom has to exist tomorrow. From where I lay, I opened the second door, and then the third. And as I saw the hope of Barsoom crawling weakly on hands and knees through the last doorway, I sank unconscious upon the ground. Chapter 28 At the Arizona Cave it was dark when I opened my eyes again. Strange, stiff garments were upon my body, garments that cracked and powdered away from me as soon as I rose to a sitting position. I felt myself over from head to foot, and from head to foot I was clothed, though when I fell unconscious at the little doorway I had been naked. Before me was a small patch of moonlit sky which showed through a ragged aperture. As my hands passed over my body, they came in contact with pockets and one of these a small parcel of matches wrapped in oiled paper. One of these matches I struck, and its dim flame lighted up what appeared to be a huge cave, toward the back of which I discovered a small, still figure huddled over a tiny bench. As I approached it, I saw that it was the dead and mummified remains of a little old woman with long black hair, and the thing I leaned over was a small charcoal burner, upon which rested a round copper vessel containing a small quantity of greenish powder. Behind her, depending from the roof upon rawhide thongs and stretching entirely across the cave, was a row of human skeletons. From the thong which held them stretched another to the dead hand of the little old woman. As I touched the cord, the skeletons swung to the motion with a noise as of the rustling of dry leaves. It was a most grotesque and horrid tableau, and I hastened out into the fresh air, glad to escape from so gruesome a place. The sight that met my eyes as I stepped out upon a small ledge which ran before the entrance of the cave filled me with consternation. 
a new heaven and a new landscape met my gaze. The silvered mountains in the distance, the almost stationary moon hanging in the sky, the cacti-studded valley below me were not of Mars. I could scarcely believe my eyes, but the truth slowly forced itself upon me. I was looking upon Arizona from the same ledge from which ten years ago I had gazed with longing upon Mars. Burying my head in my arms, I turned, broken and sorrowful, down the trail from the cave. Above me shone the red eye of Mars, holding our awful secret forty-eight million miles away. Did the Martian reach the pump room? Did the vitalizing air reach the people of that distant planet in time to save them? Was my Deja Thoris alive? Or did her beautiful body lie cold in death beside the tiny golden incubator in the sunken garden of the inner courtyard of the palace of Tardos Moors, the Jeddak of Helium? For ten years I have waited and prayed for an answer to my questions. For ten years I have waited and prayed to be taken back to the world of my lost love. I would rather lie dead beside her than live on earth all those millions of terrible miles from her. The old mine, which I found untouched, has made me fabulously wealthy, but what care I for wealth? As I sit here tonight in my little study overlooking the Hudson, just twenty years have elapsed since I first opened my eyes upon Mars. I can see her shining in the sky through the little window by my desk, and tonight she seems calling to me again and she has not called before since that long dead night. And I think I can see, across that awful abyss of space, a beautiful black-haired woman standing in the garden of a palace. And at her side is a little boy who puts his arms around her as she points into the sky toward the planet Earth, while at their feet is a huge and hideous creature with a heart of gold. I believe that they are waiting there for me, and something tells me that I shall soon know. The end. All right, there we have it. Anger Rice Burrows. He knows how to leave a cliffhanger, doesn't he? And I feel like he did that with Tarzan, too. Which, uh, if you haven't listened to that one, you can go back and listen to that. Or you can go to anotherworldaudiobooks.wordpress.com slash free. Also, link is down below for that. And uh, you can request a free audiobook. And I, if you want, I can send you Tarzan. Or any of the other books that we've done so far, which is getting to be quite a few. We've, we've made our way through quite a few books, and next week we're going to be starting on a brand new one. I cannot wait to bring this to you. Uh, if you haven't been following the social media, you probably don't know which one it is. I've been putting out some polls there, so there might still be time for you to get uh, make your voice heard. If not, then tune in next week for another. We're going to be starting off on a brand new book. I know you guys are going to love it. Thanks so much for listening and your support of this podcast. Like I've said before, this is a labor of love, and I just... Just enjoy doing it. Love putting it out there for you guys. Love to be doing more. But uh, in order to make that happen, I need I need your help. And the best way to do that is just to spread the word. Tell other people that you know. I mean, well, how much easier could it be to tell somebody about how to get free audiobooks? I and mean, that's pretty pretty low bar right there. So just make that happen. Spread the word and uh, get other people listening to the podcast, and that'll help us grow. Hopefully, get some sponsors eventually or um, something like that. And then, uh, in uh, as a result, we'll be able to just grow the podcast, bring you more awesome content. All the time. If you just want to donate, though, you can go to anchor.fm slash anotherworldaudiobooks and click on support this podcast. Or, alternatively, uh, there are links to all the past books down below where you can get actually buy the full version of the book with no interruptions, no uh, serialized episodes or anything like that. And if you do that, then that goes directly to supporting the podcast as well. Thank you guys so much for listening and sharing the podcast. 
Love y'all, and we'll talk to you next week. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.